This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Kathleen Wynne uh, has announced, or is set to announce, uh, no, has announced, uh, spending $15 million on an environmental sp- uh, study exploring the construction of high-speed rail connecting Windsor to Toronto. What? Where did this all come from? Uh, that being said, it, the idea has been around for an awfully long time. Uh, what has brought it to the forefront? Let's bring in Peter Grip, political science professor, McMaster University, and he is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, are you surprised by this latest announcement about high-speed rail? Uh, not really. I mean, it seems like a cynical pre-election ploy, uh, and so uh, it's not too surprising that a very unpopular provincial government would be thinking about ways to lock in uh, some seats that it holds or that it thinks it might be able to win back from the NDP. Uh, the, the, th- the sad part is, in all of this, it's probably a pretty good idea. Will it ever see the light of day? Well, I mean, there's a way in which uh, the, the talk of a high-speed rail tr- link in the uh, Windsor to Montreal corridor has been discussed for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years yeah. now. Uh, I mean, this obviously is a much smaller plan to go from Toronto to Windsor, and I think really the the, the key first part here that's being proposed is from Toronto to London. Uh, I mean, I think it is unlikely in the sense that it's been discussed so long and nothing has happened. It becomes more likely in that uh, certainly the provincial economic development players in, in Toronto are thinking that, you know, the real source of innovation and job growth in the uh, economy is in Waterloo, Kitchener-Waterloo, and that it needs to be tied in more tightly uh, also with the economic base in Toronto. And so in that way, uh, it becomes more likely that they try to find some form of advanced connection between those two centres. Uh, again, as you mentioned, we've been talking about this for decades, it appears. Why does it keep coming up? Why does it fall by the wayside as quickly as it's brought up? Well, I think it keeps coming up uh, because ultimately it's a fairly efficient way to move relatively large numbers of people between major urban centers. Uh, and uh, you, you probably can create a business case uh, that there would be people willing to pay that uh, because going by train, you get a kind of door-to-door experience that doesn't involve having to wait an hour, get an hour early to, to the airport, not to mention get to get way out to the airport and then downtown from wherever you fly to from the airport. I mean, there's there's ways in which you can make a case that it would be a, a popular and useful form of connectivity, but it's also expensive. Uh, and in a country where we don't have uh, the idea of traveling by rail being reliable, uh, and something that you do frequently, people balk at saying, why should we spend that kind of money on creating this sort of link? That being said, uh, many are complaining about congestion, certainly around the uh, GTHA. Anybody who's been through Europe, this is certainly the way to go. Are we big enough for this? Do we have the capacity? Yeah, I mean, I think we have the capacity. Again, the matter is, you know, developing the business case, that uh, the actual places that this is going to go, we have the number of trips going. Uh, I mean, in many ways, improving forms of uh, rail linkage within the GTA would be in some ways more effective in terms of the number of trips people are taking. I mean, the the question is, are there enough trips being made uh, into Kitchener-Waterloo and then between there and London that you would really be taking uh, people off the road and providing them, you know, faster and more hassle-free forms of uh, transportation and in the process, too, of getting them off the road then freeing up space so goods can get delivered more efficiently. Uh, you know, maybe we're approaching the point where the, the linkage uh, out of Toronto 
know, through Guelph into Kitchener Waterloo would be, you know, there's sufficient volume making that trip that it would have those kind of efficiency effects. Why not spend more money just on go within the GTHA? I mean, uh, y- you know, it's kind of like a milk run between here and Toronto. Why, why not, you know, put some sort of high-speed service in there or and just speed up the the uh, um, the commuting the commuting times between the GTHA? Yeah, I mean, I think there probably could be a good case that that would be a better use of the money. From an efficiency perspective, I mean, you'd have to, of course, ask the sort of the transportation engineers that I'm not, you know, about, you know, what would be the, the priorities. I mean, this kind of comes back to my first point that I think we're talking about this now, uh, because Kathleen Wynne sees an election coming forward. And, yeah. I mean, uh, and notably, you know, the, the, the announcement of this doesn't mean that it's going to get built. Uh, the announcement is really that they're going to spend $15 million, which is kind of a down payment on a house in Toronto these days, I think. Hmm. Uh, to do some preliminary design work and a environmental assessment. So I think in many ways it's signaling uh, to the people in the ridings that it would run through that if you re-elected a, a Liberal government, maybe this might come to fruition. But it's a way to make a promise without actually having to really put any money where your mouth is. Well, I mean, obviously $15 million is, is a lot of money to us, but in terms of the provincial budget, it's not a great deal of money. I mean, it does prepare the way if they, they wish to invest beyond that. But, you know, the other part of this announcement is clearly that they don't have the money for it. Or certainly they don't want to put uh, any public money into it directly. Uh, I mean, they talk a lot about there'd be room for private sector participation. So I think in many ways they're trying to find a way to build the, to build the line through some kind of public-private partnership, which you know probably means in the long run we pay more, but it's a way that they can put the money off the books, right, rather than actually having to take on the debt to build it. Some private consortium does it, and then we pay on a yearly basis uh, to, to use this now new private asset. So I think that's the other the other piece of it is that, you know, they want to talk about this, but they have no real intent of uh, investing money directly in it. They'd have to do it in some sort of uh, indirect way over a longer period of time, which a bit like that hydro rebate they announced a few weeks ago probably costs us more in the long run. Uh, so a Hail Mary promise. Uh, will Ontarians respond? How will they respond? Uh, I suspect they'll respond with the same cynicism I had. <laughs> I mean, this was a, a project that uh, was announced in an earlier form during the 2011 election. Uh, and, you know, in fact, they had a study done for it, which they rushed along so much so, in fact, that the person who did it, uh, you know, did part of it by using Google Earth uh, to, to look at the route it was going to take, rather mm. than actually going and looking at it in person. So, I, I mean, I think it's in, in this tradition of a promise that grows ever slightly more concrete with every election. But, you know, in these sort of four-year four, four year bursts of going from here's an idea to now we're going to spend a bit of money to do a bit more planning of it, uh, it's not something that I think we could expect to see built by 2025 or 2030, which was the sort of original set of promises in the 2011 election. Uh, Liberals been in power uh, for 14 years now. Um, shouldn't they have been doing this all along? Why are we getting all of these ideas now? Well, I think that's a good question. Uh, and I think there's a kind of a deserved uh, public skepticism about uh, some deathbed conversions of a government that's unpopular a year away from an election. I, mean, I guess the, the way one might be fair to those governments is to say you can't do everything at once. Uh, these things have to be developed over time. And in fact, uh, the McGuinty and Wynn governments have, over time, invested a fair bit in improving uh, transportation uh, in the Southern Ontario Corridor. Whether they've done it at a sufficient speed for population growth is another matter, but we have seen you know, significant uh, changes, in, uh, particularly in the GO services, 
but also the linkages into rapid transit options in a variety of municipalities north of Toronto. So, I mean, these changes, you know, have been happening, uh, but it's true, this does seem a bit uh, like a deathbed conversion. How will opposition uh, react? Will they jump on board? Will they come up with something similar? Um, How will they react to this, do you think? Uh, I suspect uh, Patrick Brown and the Conservatives uh, will say that this is, you know, ultimately a waste of public money. The government has no intention to actually build this thing, but they're cynically spending money on further planning uh, and and make that case, uh, I suspect. Uh, There's a couple of ridings held by Conservatives that will run through where where there might be some play involved, but in some ways I think this uh, is aiming more at uh, trying to hold London and Kitchener-Waterloo seats uh, against the New Democrats or even take back a couple of those seats that the New Democrats won from the Liberals uh, by making this promise. So I presume that uh, uh, Andrea Horvath's response will be to say that there's some other form of transit linkage that would be more logical than this high-speed train. Uh, and I suspect that will be her way of, of responding to this. Uh, I think it's first and foremost an attempt to hold on to some Liberal uh, seats in the sort of Western GTA, but then to maybe uh, try to take back a couple of seats that the Liberals lost to the NDP in, in Kitchener-Waterloo and London by election. Uh, does that explain the route? You obviously alluded earlier to, you know, uh, the industries in Kitchener-Waterloo and how it's, it's growing and how, uh, you, you know, we need connectivity between Toronto and these other cities. Does that explain the route, or is this all politics? Uh, Well, I mean, part of the route is where existing rail lines are. (laughs) Some of it is, you know, where they have the corridor. Uh, And I think, you know, to to make sense, right, they could have run this train anywhere where they were trying to save some ridings. But, uh, I mean, I think there's also an economic rationale given the size of these population centres and the importance of trying to link them together. Uh, I mean, there is this kind of dream of a kind of southern Ontario technopole that really ties... Uh, Toronto and Kitchener-Waterloo together, and here in Hamilton, you know, part of our reflection should be about how could we become part of that as maybe the manufacturing leg of the of a, of a tripod there uh, of the you know the technological innovation in Kitchener-Waterloo, a lot of the business acumen uh, and financing out of Toronto and high tech. You know, could we be the manufacturing arm of that for advanced manufacturing? Uh, this train uh, would obviously not be part of that because it's not coming through Hamilton. Um, but I, I suspect uh, the real kind of driving force is to say, well, you know, these are ridings we want to win, but there's also a business case we make so we don't look like idiots proposing a train to nowhere. Uh, it seems by the time we get these things built, it's, uh, they're full up already it, it, when it comes to highway lanes. Uh, is, some, is something like this 20 years too late, or is it better late than never? Uh, well, in some ways, I think had we built these uh, networks earlier, we probably would be uh, thinking about connectivity in maybe more advanced ways at the moment. So I, mean, I think we probably have paid a price in, in not doing it earlier. But in other ways, I think these things come together in, in a timing that makes sense. I mean, we've seen Kitchener-Waterloo make the decision in building their LRT that the old way of getting around wasn't going to work with the population that we have. That we have to find new ways of moving people around because we can't just add more lanes and more cars. Uh, those are just going to fill up and slow things down. So given that, uh, you know, if people are getting out of their cars in KW uh, in terms of getting around, then they may actually be more reliant on things like rail and bus to move between cities. Maybe it makes sense to begin thinking about those options. When will any of this move forward? What, you know, again, environmental assessment, spending $15 million on that. When would this actually get started? Do we know? 
Uh, I mean, we don't know because there's been no commitment to actually spend the big bucks. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, if they did move through the environmental assessment, then the next would be the business case. If their plan is to go through some form of public-private partnership, it would be really taking, you know, a year to two years to really nail down what the specifications of, of, of the bids would have to be and to go out and get bidders. So, I mean, uh, I mean we're really looking at uh, a long-term commitment. I mean, they would things wouldn't get moving until after the next provincial election, presumably. Uh, and even there, it would take a couple of years to get up and moving. And so you're really looking at something at like 2030 or so. Uh, will other will we see the other two parties incorporate some sort of transit plan or some sort of uh, infrastructure transportation plan into their uh, campaigns as a result of this? Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Kathleen Wynne certainly has uh, expanded uh, LRT, this sort of thing, in, in various communities. Uh, will the other two parties need an extensive plan? Because when you do think about it and look at it now, she has done a bit more uh, in that department than her predecessor certainly did. Yeah, I mean, I think it's unavoidable, uh, given you know the, the mass of the Ontario population is living in the yeah. GTA. Uh, also, the Ontario business community is clear that there's uh, massive losses every year in terms of potential business as a result of not being able to get goods around, not being able to get things delivered in time. Uh, the auto majors maybe don't want to do an investment in places like uh, Oshawa or Oakville if they don't think they can get their trucks there uh, in the time they need them so that the you know the parts arrive. And so, uh, I mean, there's a push even uh, you know the Conservative Party, which you know traditionally might have been most hesitant to have this kind of public investment in. Uh, transportation infrastructure, preferring the kind of the private car. Uh, even in the last election, uh, you know, they had a fairly extensive argument about how they had to improve transit, particularly in Toronto. So I suspect both Patrick Brown and Andrea Horvath will have uh, things to say. I mean, I think much like this promise, they're, they're not really that uh, sophisticated, right? There's, they're promising the moon. It's not exactly clear exactly, you know, what they're going to do, how they're going to pay for it. Uh, but clearly, it's, you know, it's both economically but also for quality of life, uh, solving the transportation problem or at least alleviating you know, the, the amount of time that Ontarians spend commuting to and from work, uh, the losses of business efficiency from goods just sitting on the highway in traffic jams. You know, it's, uh, it's a priority for all of the parties uh, to find some kind of solution. But again, I, I think our public discussion of the options is not very strong. I mean, we saw that with the Toronto Sudbury, uh, sorry, the, the Toronto Scarborough sub, uh, subway debate that people are not really thinking, I think, very efficiently about how we do these things, and so our parties can promise whatever. Uh, it probably doesn't make too much difference to citizens' decisions in the election. Peter Grape has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Kathleen Wynne announcing a high-speed rail in southern Ontario, southern central Ontario. Peter, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Donald Trump's administration has officially indicated their intention to renegotiate NAFTA. Uh, This triggers a 90-day window for each of the agreement's members to prepare for those talks. To talk more about all of this, Patrick LeBlanc is with us, Senior Fellow, Center for International Governance Innovation, and on the line with us now. Hello, Patrick. How are you today? Hi, Sean. I'm fine, and you? Very good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Greatly appreciated. Uh, is there anyone out there who feels that after 23 years, this does not need to be re- uh, renegotiated? We really haven't heard, uh, other than Donald Trump's rhetoric, we really haven't heard many people saying that this didn't need to be renegotiated. 
No, they, I mean, there are very few people who, who will say that we should we should just leave NAFTA as it is. Uh, I mean, NAFTA was negotiated in the early 1990s, and it was not negotiated in the way that allows the agreement to evolve as the North American economy has evolved. So just to give one example, uh, everything that has to do with uh, e- e-commerce, g- digital trade, uh, just didn't exist back then, right? The, the Internet was just starting at least for, for the general population. Uh, we didn't know anything about, about browsers. Uh, uh, so that whole world, of course, has changed, and, and, and just at a minimum, NAFTA should reflect that, uh, possibly having a, a chapter on e-commerce that would allow, for instance, the, the free flow of information uh, and, and data so that you know, people can, can easily buy uh, products across the, uh, the two borders uh, without forcing companies to have their servers, both in Canada and the U.S., for instance, or in Mexico. How should uh, Canadians react to this being renegotiated? Should, should they be fearful? Should they be optimistic? Uh, obviously, with the rhetoric coming out of the States, it, it's created some apprehension. How should Canadians feel about this? Well, I, I think they, they, they should feel somewhat mixed about it, given uh, exactly, as you said, the, the rhetoric and the, 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 the kind of very mixed messages that we've received from the U.S. Uh, certainly, if one reads the letter that was sent uh, from uh, Mr. Lighthizer to, uh, to Congress yesterday, uh, you know, it was sort of moderate, positive in tone, like we want to modernize this. They didn't have any of the, uh, you know, NAFTA is a bad deal. We, we need to renegotiate this uh, for, for Americans. Uh, uh, at the expense of Canadians and Mexicans. Uh, so there was no such thing there, but we know that things can change very quickly. I mean, uh, just a few weeks ago, Mr. Trump was threatening to, to, to leave NAFTA. Uh, so so it's, it's hard to tell exactly in what mood the Americans will go into these negotiations. But certainly for, for Canada, and, and I think Mexico too, the idea is saying, well, you know, we're okay, we're open to talk. Uh, well, let's see if we can actually modernize the agreement, make it better, uh, improve... Uh, uh, economic exchanges between the three countries, f- facilitate trade, facilitate investment, uh, and hopefully that will have a positive impact on, on growth. Uh, and, and if not, well, then, you know, let's just leave things as they are, because that's all, always an option. And, and you know, Na- NAFTA is not, is, is not doing badly for Canada. And uh, in this case, we should be looking for a better deal. But if ultimately the Americans want to worsen the deal for us, then we should just walk away. When NAFTA was being negotiated uh, 25 or so years ago, uh, many were against NAFTA. Many of the large unions were against NAFTA. uh, NAFTA. Now, at the threat of having it removed or abolished or whatever uh, Donald Trump's going to do to it, there's almost the same sort of hysteria. Why is that? Well, you know, people kind of react. You always have people who are against free trade on the one hand, right, uh, for ideological reasons or for fear of, 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 of losing jobs, which, I mean, let, let's be honest, free trade deals are not perfect. You, you, not everybody wins. Uh, so for those who, who fear uh, or stand to lose from free trade agreements, uh, obviously will we'll oppose it. And, and, and many unions in the manufacturing sectors uh, have opposed free trade, uh, although in some cases free trade has not been the reason why uh, manufacturing jobs have been lost, but just simply technological change and, 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 and the fact that you know, there, there are some things that 
you know, we can no longer afford to do here in Canada or in the U.S., and they're cheaper, being done cheap, more cheaply in, in places like China or Vietnam or, or Bangladesh, for that, that matter. And that's, of course, uh, wanting uh, Canadian consumers to, to have cheaper products. Uh, otherwise, we'd be paying a lot more for T-shirts and cars, etc. Uh, but then on the other hand, of course, if, if, if the U.S. pulls out of NAFTA, uh, well, that means that it would uh, increase costs of doing business in North America, and, and, and ultimately the consumers would pay, businesses would, would lose money, they, 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 they would probably uh, shed workers, and, and so you, you have the same kind of fear, but uh, on the other hand, without necessarily the promise of, of past jobs coming back. I mean, Mr. Trump has made a, a big issue of bringing those manufacturing jobs to the U.S., but it, it's really not clear that, that adopting uh, protectionism uh, will really help a lot of companies that say, "Well, look, if 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 we have to uh, do more things in the U.S. than than we're having done in Canada or in Mexico or in other parts of the world, well, we might simply just hire more robots and and more computing and 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 not necessarily hire hire a lot of you know lower skilled workers to to do things that uh, just you know can be done for maybe a dollar, two dollars, three dollars an hour in other places, whereas here it would cost fifteen, twenty, if not more, uh, an hour." Uh, has that happened? You, you talked about him bringing uh, jobs back to uh, America. Can he save these jobs? Or, like you said, is that turning the clock back? Well, you know, I, I think you can't turn the clock back, uh, as, as I just explained, uh, because, you know, those jobs are gone. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, 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 the the whole, for instance, uh, auto industry has completely changed. Uh, it's now a, a completely integrated industry in, in, in North America and, and also with parts coming from, from Asia. Uh, so if you close the borders... Uh, then you know you're you're going to increase costs uh, tremendously because well we're going to have to start you know either we'll we'll lose for instance in Canada it could mean that we we just lose simply a lot of of uh, our uh, auto parts uh, manufacturing our uh, car assemblies uh, where some companies might decide okay well we, we we shouldn't keep those jobs in 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 Canada and we'll we'll try to bring them back in the U.S. because that's where we have the bigger market and then we'll just pay whatever tariff that we have to 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 export them to Canada so so we. Could could lose, uh, and to some extent, yes, yeah, some of these jobs might be moved to uh, south of the border. But then maybe companies say, "Well, if we have to build a whole new plant, uh, maybe we'll, we'll instead of hiring people, we might just build a, a lot new, more new robots." Uh, and and you know that that will be it because it it costs a lot of money to train people and uh, then then you have to pay them uh, so it, it's not fully clear that you can turn the clock back given where we are uh, these days and, and ultimately uh, ditching NAFTA would would hurt all three economies uh, in, both in terms of jobs in terms of growth and 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 especially for for consumers I mean let's not forget that if you take to a car today. Uh, it's actually, you know, you get a much better car than you had in the early 1990s, but you're also paying in today's dollars a lot less than what the equivalent you were paying back then. You know, today you 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 pay $20, uh, $20,000 for a pretty decent car yeah. uh, with a lot of equipment. Well, you know, what did you get for $20,000 back in in the early 1990s? That's a very valid point. Uh, many in the U.S. were upset at the thought of Trump uh, and his language towards N- uh, NAFTA. Uh, Trump says that uh, the U.S. has been the biggest loser in NAFTA. Is that the case? Has it been the worst for, for the U.S.? 
Not at all. I, I think, you know, certainly the, 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 there have been challenges created by, by NAFTA and generally by, by, by the globalization of trade. So it's not just free trade. But even, you know, the, uh, the complaints that we hear in Michigan and Ohio and Indiana, the, so, you know, the Rust Belt, where they, they've lost uh, manufacturing jobs and especially in, in the automo- uh, automotive industry. Well, you know, in, in fact, yes, some of these jobs have moved to Mexico, but a lot of jobs have actually moved south in the, the southern parts of the U.S., Right? Where have automobile manufacturers invested in the last 10, 15 years? Uh, you know, it, it's been in, in places like Tennessee and Alabama yeah. and Texas Kentucky, and, and Mississippi. Yeah. That's where the, the automotive, a lot of the automotive jobs have gone because, first of all, in those states, you know, they have the right to work legislation that basically prevents uh, unionization. Uh, so, and they don't have the legacy cost of pensions and everything. So, you know, they pay people between 12 and $15 an hour instead of paying them between 25 and 30 five dollars an hour so you know that's just within the u.s it has nothing to do with free trade uh, a lot of it has, has to do with you know labor legislation and and also the fact that uh, companies say okay well you know we can move the southern part of the u.s we can cut our costs we can build new plants we can make them more modern and it's actually cheaper than trying to 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 switch what we have in michigan for instance so has free trade worked for canada over the years Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, it, 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 well, we, we've all seen the numbers in terms of how much uh, our exports to the U.S. boomed after we signed our free trade agreement with them in, in, in the late 19, uh, 1980s, and then, of course, with NAFTA afterwards. Uh, in the last uh, 10, 10 years or so, it, it's, it's, it's plateaued. Uh, in part, it's because, you know, there's been uh, competition from, from China and other places, obviously. Uh, but also, in, it, it reflects in also the, uh, the fact that NAFTA has not evolved with the way the, the, the North American and global economy has, has, has evolved. And, and that's why a lot of people are calling for modernization that uh, will hopefully uh, lead to, to more exports and, and, and more investments in North America as opposed to companies looking outside of North America. Uh, what is the process here? Uh, what has happened in the last couple of days uh, that, that's triggered all of this chat? Talk about the 90-day window. What is the process here? Well, the, the process, so now there's been this letter uh, to Congress, which is kind of the beginning of the process on the American side. So uh, according to uh, con- uh, congressional legislation, they, 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 in order to provide uh, what is called the trade promotion authority to, to, the, to, to the president, to the White House, which before we used to call it fast track, uh, which is that if, if uh, the, the president uh, negotiates a free trade agreement, then uh, it can be submitted to, for Congress for for a yes or no vote. Uh, so uh, it cannot be picked apart by Congress because otherwise you can imagine you, you negotiate something, then it arrives in, in Congress and they say, oh, well, we don't like that, we don't like that, we want to change that. And then basically the Americans have to come back to, to the Canadians and the Mexicans and say, well, you know, we told you we'd do this, but now we have to start over. So it just removes all credibility from, uh, from the administration to negotiate any free trade agreement. So within that legislation now is basically that Congress will, 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 will study the situation will make uh, pretty much its own recommendation in the way that what they will be looking for 
in in such a negotiation. So uh, telling the White House uh, in a way what they're willing to accept and not willing to accept. Uh, and that kind of provides a framework for the White House in, in negotiating with Canada and, 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 and Mexico. Uh, and, and then, you know, the, the negotiations will start. However, uh, you know, we, we should not expect things to move very quickly because even before the actual negotiations will start, uh, there'll probably be some kind of scoping exercise where both three, the three sides will sit together and say, okay, well, what is it that we want to talk about? What is it that we want to touch? What is it that we don't want to touch and leave aside? Uh, do we want to reopen every chapter? Do we want to leave aside certain things? Do we want to include certain things? So that's kind of the scoping exercise that needs to be done, and, that, and that's likely going to take many months. Then uh, the Mexicans are going into a, uh, an election next year, so that's basically nothing's going to happen during that time. Uh, then you know we're going to be facing the, the midterm elections next fall, so that might slow slow things down uh, on, on the U.S. side. Um, and, and then, as you know, the, the, these negotiations can get very technical. Uh, we saw the ones with, the, with Europe, which took almost 10 years. Uh, so there, there's a strong possibility that, that no deal could happen until the next presidential election. Will this and, and be? Who knows where Mr. Trump will be by then? Uh, will this still be in the news? Will there still be this rhetoric flying around all through this? And once we are in these discussions, how much is Trump involved? Um, I think probably not much, uh, because as I said, this will the, the negotiations will be conducted by, by USTR. USTR, of course, will keep uh, the White House informed of what's happening. They will keep Congress informed of what's happening, because in a way they want to make sure that whatever USTR kind of agrees to in the negotiations would be politically acceptable to both sides. Uh, but, you know, I doubt that uh, given you know, what we've seen from Mr. Trump's uh, attention span, that, that he would be deeply involved in the negotiations, given that these things can be quite, uh, quite technical. So probably he'll be briefed, of course, on what's happening. Uh, we might hear a lot of very different rhetoric coming from, from the White House, uh, but, you know, that's not necessarily representative of, of what will be in a deal if we do get to a, an end deal on this. Uh, we, you know, we've seen Mr. Trump basically uh, backflip uh, from, uh, you know, one day, basically in the same day saying we're leaving NAFTA to, oh, in fact, I changed my mind. We're not leaving NAFTA because <laughs> I spoke to Mr. Trudeau and uh, Peña Nieto and, and, and they, they made a good case for why we should just negotiate. Wow, that's a whole other discussion, that one. Uh, considering the tension between the United States and Mexico, is the dealing between Canada and the United States going to be easier than the dealing between Mexico and, uh, and the United States? Or at the end of the day, is it all about business? Well, that, that's a good question because, I mean, some people, they, there's still a debate as to whether the, the, the negotiations will be conducted as two bilateral negotiations or as one trilateral negotiation. Uh, I guess that will be part of the scoping exercise. Maybe on, on some issues where the Americans will say, well, you know, we, we have this with the Mexicans, but we don't have this with the Canadians. Uh, it might be discussed more bilaterally and then vice versa if there are issues that, that, that the Canadians, uh, the, the, the Americans want to deal with with Canada, let's say, uh, supply management and dairy, which does not concern the Mexicans. So maybe these things will be discussed more, negotiated more bilaterally. So I think we're going to have kind of hybrid negotiations taking place. 
and 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 I think the Americans will, you know, they, 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 yes, Mr. Trump said when when Mr. Trudeau was in Washington said, oh, we just want to tweak with with the Canadians, and then you know the real issues that we have are with the Mexicans. But that whole rhetoric has changed since then, uh, where he said, well, no, I want a big, a uh, major renegotiation. I don't know. He talked about massive uh, just a week ago, right. uh, and and that included with Canada, included Canada. So. Uh, you know, who knows? Uh, and, and I think, you know, it will be a lot about the negotiators themselves uh, moving things along and, and, and trying to see what, what can be achieved uh, given, you know, the, the politics of it. And, and, and that's likely to be very uncertain both in the U.S. and in Mexico given uh, the possibility of a governmental change uh, next summer. Uh, it seems that Canada has been uh, working on this behind the scenes for a while. How well positioned are we for these talks? I think we are very well positioned. Uh, Canada has already, uh, well, the, the federal government has already uh, conducted several uh, public consultations with, with industry, with, with academics and, and other stakeholders. Uh, they, they've been really looking at uh, what are you know, the defensive interests, so things that uh, we want to protect, what are offensive interests, things that we'd like the Americans and possibly even the Mexicans to change, uh, what are the things that we would like to see modernized uh, in, in, in NAFTA, and, 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 and on what basis we would want them modernized. Do we want to look to uh, the agreement that we did with the Europeans to, to say, well, you know, there, there are elements there that we could use to, to modernize NAFTA? Do we want to look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where, in fact, all three North American countries had signed on to. Uh, and, and, in fact, if, if Mr. Trump had not decided to, to not present the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, agreement to Congress, we would not even be talking about NAFTA, because, in a way, that the, the TPP was supposed to replace NAFTA. Uh, so, in, in fact, because the TPP is not happening, now we're having this, this NAFTA renegotiation. But... You know, again, if the, maybe at the end of the day, the, the, Mr. Trump could decide to, to change his mind and reactivate the TPP, and then the whole NAFTA renegotiations uh, would, 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 would fall apart. So uh, I think in Canada, we're really thinking and trying to cover all our bases, looking at all scenarios. We're even, you know, working with the Japanese to keep TPP alive in case the Americans will want to come back. Uh, we uh, were in contact with the provinces, with business. Uh, we've had a lot of engagements with in the U.S., both in Washington and at the state level. Uh, so, so and, and, and ultimately, uh, we know that uh, the status quo is, is not necessarily a bad place to be should the Americans want to, to, to make NAFTA more protectionist. So, so I, I think we, we have a strong position. I think we want this to be win-win, and if the Americans want this to be win-win, then we'll negotiate. But if they think that this is going to be a sort of zero-sum game where, uh, in fact, they, 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 they win if we lose, uh, then I, I think we're, we're probably not going to get very far, and uh, our negotiators will just come back home. Patrick LeBlanc has been with us, Senior Fellow, Center for International Governance Innovation, talking about negotiations surrounding NAFTA. Patrick, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It was a pleasure, Sean. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of us have tattoos. I should, shouldn't say that because I don't. But uh, over the last several years, a decade or so, a couple of decades, they've really, really increased in popularity. At one time, the majority didn't seem to have them. Now it seems almost everybody does. Uh, do it for different reasons. But how, and you know, it's, it's, it's magnificent when you think about it, what they can do now compared to the, the old style tattoos. I mean, some of them are just absolutely beautiful. Uh, but do you want more out of your tattoo than that?
it's nice, but where's the interaction? Over and above, oh, wow, that's nice. Well, a uh, Los Angeles tattoo artist has come up with a uh, very unusual and groundbreaking idea. Skin Motion is an app that creates tattoo designs from audio clips, which can be played back via your smartphone. The technology will become available uh, next month, gives people the opportunity to capture the sounds of their lost ones, and of course, put it into a tattoo. Nate Sigard is with us, founder of Skin Motion, Skin Motion LLC, and uh, created Soundwave Tattoos, and is with us now. Hello, Nate. How are you doing today? Great. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well. So how did you come up with this idea, Nate? Well, I was uh, doing a tattoo on a couple friends of mine, an Elton John uh, lyric, and as they were leaving, my girlfriend suggested it would be cool if we could figure out how to play that song back. So uh, I've been working on augmented reality art and uh, some cool applications for using technology and art for the last few years, and I realized that was actually something that we could make happen. And I uh, made a video and uh, put that video online, and the video went viral. Have you heard of anyone else doing something similar to this? You know, uh, there's been people getting tattoos of sound waves now for a long time. I think that people have a lot of attachment to music and other sounds. And so um, being able to get one that's able to play back is something that no one has been able to do uh, until now. So in layman's terms, how does this work? Or how will it work? Well, the, well, the app works by uh, taking a sound that someone wants to get recorded and it generates the shape of the waveform for them that they can take to a tattoo artist. And that tattoo artist will put it on them and after they're done, they take a picture with the app and the app trains itself to recognize that image and then using image recognition, plays the sound back. This almost sounds unbelievable. And it sounds exactly like the file itself? Yeah, so it's actually playing back the, the whatever file gets uploaded in the first place, and that's right. Uh, the, yeah, that's the, the so basically the that people are con- yep. No, go ahead, go ahead. There's a lot of concern I think that people have because they haven't seen this before that they're you know that over time it may uh, age and by aging it's not going to sound good. But really, the way that it's working is uh, that the sound is always going to come back from what was originally uploaded. Right. So. Over time, there's going to be no degradation in the quality of the sound. And also, if anything, as a tattoo ages and with its natural aging process, uh, we'll be able to retrain the system so that it will always be able to play the song back. Wow. So this is a case of um, uh, taking an image of the tattoo, uh, then the device recognizes the image that's on the tattoo and matches it to the image that's on the phone. Yep, you got it. So, uh, well, there you go. And then so it it finds that image on your device and then goes right to it and starts playing it. So it's actually looking for the image on our server. We have a a really amazing platform that we're building that's going to let us create augmented reality, like personalized augmented reality experiences, not just for tattoos, but for a whole lot of different things. And uh, the sound wave tattoos are really only the beginning. So the, the, the file itself doesn't have to be on the device that you're taking it from. It, from. it actually goes to your server and identifies it? Well, when the person wants to, when they choose which tattoo that they want to get, they upload that sound to the server. So right. originally it does come from the phone, but then it lives on the, in, in, in the app on our server. 
Wow, that is amazing. Uh, what what sort of things have you... Uh, so uh, tell us right now, before I'm getting ahead of myself here, so what stage is this at now? What stage are you at now with this project? So we have a, uh, the Working Development app, and uh, we're doing demonstrations and um, research and development right now out in L.A., and the app is scheduled for release in June. And we're, right now we're also signing up tattoo artists around the world to be part of our artist network and they're going to get extra training that teaches them how the app works and how to use the platform. Because as we go forward, it's going to, we're going to have a lot more products than, uh, than just sound wave tattoos. We're going to have uh, animated tattoos, um, things that uh, no one's really ever seen before. Uh, worried about people stealing your ideas. Or is uh, that think, just, is that just think- inevitable? Well, I think it is kind of an inevitable thing when you, uh, you know, really we're applying technology and these are the new exciting technology out here right now is augmented reality and virtual reality. And uh, there's a lot of people who are working on some really amazing concepts for this. And so I think rather than being concerned, we're just moving forward as fast as we can. And we're trying to open our, open our platform and open the company up to work and collaborate with other artists so that Rather than competing with each other, we can build a, an amazing ecosystem of um, next-level experiences. Why do you think, what is the attraction, do you think this is, why do you, what do you think the attraction is for people for these tattoos? Well, tattoos are, are so visual, and, um, you know, people have been getting really personal tattoos for a long time. Uh, I, I think... You know, really, it's like a type of therapy for most people who are getting them, uh, at least the people who are really enthusiasts, and they they get a lot of them. And uh, their story, it it helps them have a way to express themselves and to tell their story and and, uh, share with other people the way that they feel about life. And I think having a tattoo that plays back a sound takes that idea, but then it adds a whole other dimension to it, another sense and experience where... Not only are you sharing a story about someone, but you're actually sharing, you know, that person saying something or um, the sound of that, especially for people who've been lost. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that we are concerned about and, and working towards with the company is generating awareness around mental health issues and suicide prevention because so many people um, are writing to us with messages about how they want to get tattoos from loved ones who have died and uh, who have uh, died from drug overdoses and, um, situations where with a little bit more love and compassion, we might have been able to do something to help those people out. How does someone else access this with their device, or is it just a personal thing? No, so uh, we're using geolocation. So as uh, if you're around someone else who has a sound wave tattoo, then your app on your phone will actually retrieve their content and allow you to play back their tattoo as well. So what about privacy issues? Are there people that say, hey, I just want this one for me, I don't want it? How, how does that work? Yeah, we'll give, we'll give them an option for that. But I think it, it's kind of like uh, when you're in public and you're walking around, uh, you know, anyone can just take your picture. And, and so really the ultimate privacy is, especially going into this, like, new digital future where um, you're truly your privacy is something that is, if you're in a public space, is not something that uh, you that we really need to be super attached to because already there are CCTVs everywhere and whatever. But but we will definitely have privacy protection in the app built in where if somebody wants theirs to be private, then um, they will be the only one who'll be able to see it. So are there people already tattooed, just waiting for the for uh, the app to be available? 
there's a few people that we have uh, done a lot of like R&D with out here in LA, and, and they aren't actually able to play back their tattoos until the app comes out. But um, we're also thinking there's going to be the possibility that anybody who has a Soundwave tattoo already, uh, is, as long as they have the sound file that they use to generate it in the first place, should be able to upgrade it with our app. Hmm. And as you mentioned, uh, as you age or wrinkle or hair, it doesn't affect this in any way? Well, as, as it ages, you'll be able to retrain the system to whatever the tattoo looks like over time. So, you know, over, let's say, five to ten years, typically a tattoo will get a little bit blurrier. Maybe they, if, if someone goes in the sun a lot, it'll get a lot blurrier. But um, as that happens, you'll be able to point the app back at the tattoo and retrain it to recognize the way that it, it looks currently. And what about cost for this? Uh, do you, is it a one-time thing, or would it be an ongoing fee to keep the file up, Nate? Nope, it's a one-time fee. Uh, we're still coming up with uh, exactly what that's going to be. We're trying to keep it as low as we can, but uh, obviously you know, the lifetime of the tattoo is going to come with a certain uh, server cost and things like that. So um, because we're kind of going backwards with this, where we had a, a product that a lot of people wanted and all of a sudden realized we needed to start a company to do it. Uh, we're, and so we're kind of going backwards in figuring out all these like smaller details. But we're really excited that everybody's been messaging us and is super interested in, in about getting one. And uh, we're very motivated by uh, the stories that people are telling us, uh, the reasons they want well, they want to get them and, and how really it's, it's going to be like a cathartic and uh, healing thing for them. So we're mm. excited. Uh, any challenges doing this? When does it not work, or have you, have you never had that situation? Yeah, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of little things, and uh, that's why we're doing so much research and development right now. The main thing that the tattoo has to have is that it needs to be in a, a relatively flat location. That's kind of hard to do on a three-dimensional body, uh, but there are certain places on the body that are better places to put them than others, uh, so that when they're being played back, they're not going to be stretched or in any kind of uh, altered state from the original where the image has been trained um, because then it won't play back. And, and in which case, we could just retrain it again. Uh, but I think that's going to be part of our educating the tattoo artist is making sure that they know which places are the best places to put it um, and the, the best ways to do it with the designs because the, the artists are actually going to be able to customize them and come up with uh, unique shapes. It doesn't have to be limited to just a single uh, silhouette of a sound wave. Um, and the more that I think we start working with other artists and they start getting creative with it, uh, we're going to see some really cool uses of the technology. Can you put the sound wave within another image, like a tattoo, a normal tattoo with this somehow inside it or a part of it? Yeah. So uh, actually the, the second one I did um, was on my girlfriend, Juliana, whose idea was to do this in the first place. And um, hers is a sound wave that's a negative space inside of a silhouette of her dog, Bachi. And uh, the sound is actually him howling back at her. So when, when we play the sound, when we play the tattoo, he starts singing along with it. And it's a little chorus of dogs all singing. That's incredible. So as a tattoo artist, when you're uh, creating these, is there any difference or, or, or more work to, uh, to replicating a sound wave as opposed to some of the other work you do? Well, 
I think it's going to be more fun for tattoo artists to figure out how they want to customize them. Like already a couple of the tattoo artists that we're working with are coming up with some really cool ideas. And so to see these ideas so, so quickly, I think it, I can't even imagine the, the endless possibilities for this, but from the tattoo artist perspective, really there's nothing extra difficult or challenging for them. In fact, I think uh, it, it, it should be a good way to, to uh, we're going to be, sending a lot of people to tattoo artists who are finding out about this through our website and who are, are buying our product online and then who need to find a tattoo artist to go to. And so, you know, it kind of works out for, it's like a symbiotic relationship where everybody wins that, um, you know, the, the tattoos typically are only about 15 to 30 minutes to do. And, uh, you know, until they get customized, I guess it'll take a little bit longer, but um, really the incentive for the tattoo artist, I think is, is, that they, there's a lot of people who are interested in getting these tattoos who, who don't have tattoos and who said that I've never gotten a tattoo, I've never been interested in having a tattoo, and all of a sudden, like, this is something I would get. Uh, will, automate, will automation take over this business? I mean, obviously, there's lots of artists that create these, the, these works on people's bodies. What about a template in a machine? Is that ever possible, Nate? <laughs> I've... You know, I have a friend actually who used a 3D printer to do a tattoo once, and um, there is some uh, effort, I think, in trying to figure out ways to merge technology and tattoos, whether it's cybernetics or um, different types of technology like 3D printing on a tattoo. But, I, I, you know, tattoos are the oldest art form ever recorded, actually. The, the, human rema- the oldest human remains on Earth, Ossie the Iceman, has over 20 tattoos. And uh, they were believed to be used for therapeutic purposes because of the places that they were put on the body and the shapes that they were. Um, and and I, I personally feel like, you know, tattoos are, are such a unique thing in that they allow us to connect with each other on a very human, animalistic level. And uh, so to bridge the digital world and this, like, mental creation that we're all manifesting together with our physical animal bodies really is like bringing everything together. Does that take the art out of it? Well, you know, I think that there's, there's a degree of that we want to encourage the tattoo artist to customize them as much as possible so that it, it keeps it an art. You know, I think also anything done with intention and skill can be an art. And this, is, this gives us a chance for people who may not have interacted with tattoos or uh, had a way to own a piece of living art themselves actually become the art. Where can this go, Nate? I mean, uh, is this just the tip of the iceberg of, of where you could go with this, where you can take this? Yeah, absolutely. This is this is definitely just the beginning. Uh, we have a couple other products that we're going to release as soon as the app comes out in June. And then uh, the future really is uh, limitless. You know, the... The tattoo that I'm really excited to get is I'm, I'm going to get a tattoo in my palm. And, and when I put the uh, app over my palm, there's going to be a ball of flames hovering above, above my hand, sort of like a superhero X-Men or something like that. But um, really, I think the 3D tattoos um, and creating these like uh, avatar, digital avatars for ourselves that overlay on our physical bodies really the options are, are endless, and we're really excited to see what people come up with. That, that was my next question. I mean, when does video work its way into this? Uh, it'll probably be another a couple months until we have uh, 
enough research and development done, but the platform is designed and built to support it from the get-go. So really, it's just a matter of how quickly can we uh, scale up the company, hire more people, get uh, the, the momentum going so that we can accomplish these things. But really, it's just a matter of time and money right now. And because it, really, this is a boot, it's all bootstrap. Uh, my girlfriend, Juliana, and I have, have really put the whole thing together ourselves in, over the last month. And we're, uh, you know, we're working as fast as we can in order to, to get everything out as quickly as possible. A uh, website we can go to, Nate, to find out what you're doing? Oh, uh, yeah. The website is skinmotion.com. All right, skimmotion.com. Nate Sigard has been with us, founder of Skim Motion LLC and creator of Soundwave Tattoos out of L.A. Nate, thanks for the time. Uh, much appreciated. Good luck with this. Great. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.